0: Welcome to the C Word, the Conservators Podcast. Today we're talking about smut. I'm Jenna Mathiasen, an objects conservator based in South Yorkshire. I'm Chloe Rumsey, an
1: objects conservator based in Greater Manchester.
2: And I'm Christina Rizek, an objects conservator based in Cambridgeshire. Welcome to the show. Well, well, well.
0: Yes, quite. So, um, what do we mean by smut, people? I kind of define this as. Anything that will make people blush this is our not <laughs> safe for work episode no it's it's fine it's fine obviously it's fine we're not going to show you anything this is an audio only a <laughs> medium but if you're prone to blushing maybe just you know put headphones, headphones in yeah just put headphones in no one will know no one will know you don't have to tell
1: so we came up with this episode topic i can't remember what so when we talk about episode episode topics there's usually <laughs> like a, a a thing that we see or something that makes us kind of think oh my god that would be an. a that will be an amazing topic. I can't remember what this one was, but I remember the conversation. I think, and
0: I could be wrong, that I just got excited about your dad's art. Ah. Uh, so
1: that, that,
0: <laughs> might, that yeah, might need yeah. a little bit of clarification. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, Chloe's dad is an artist. He is
1: an artist. And one of the, Paul Ramsey, look him up. Follow his Facebook page because I run it. Put a link thanks in the thanks. show notes. <laughs> um, and one of his series um, of drawings um is based basically around the concept of masculinity and phallic symbols being um representative and uh, visible in all parts of society and imagery and you know like a phallus instead of a gun type, that sort of thing. Or instead um, of a head. Instead and of it, yeah. yeah. So from that, we started thinking about, God, there's loads of things that just aren't taken seriously in society because they are related to sex in some way. Mm. And then we realised, obviously, usually we'll have a friend or have had an experience ourselves where, as conservators, we've had a slightly risque object to conserve. And the number of times that I've heard... Oh yes, I can serve this object and I was in the news about it. It's just really surprising <laughs> so we we got thinking basically about sex and collections and the risque objects um, and what that means and what that means for the object and the preservation of that object. Mm. So that's the the context of what we're talking about today and how we came up with this idea. We we I don't know how much giggling we'll have like maybe 20% we'll giggling. Thing? Yeah.
0: Yeah, probably. Feel free to giggle along. That's all right. That's all right. It's a safe space.
2: I think when in our chat um about it last week, in our kind of pre episode planning chat, um we kind of established that probably Chloe and I were gonna giggle a lot more being British and <laughs> therefore probably quite <laughs> prudish, whereas Jenny is a sensible Swede who's probably got a slightly more grown up <laughs> approach to these things.
0: Oh, you say that, but I assimilate well. <laughs> <laughs> um ladies have you have any of you worked on anything that's a little bit on the smutty side i haven't
1: Oh, oh, well, I will say I haven't first. Okay. The okay. The closest thing other than dad's work and talking about like the representation of sex in art and stuff, which mm. is, you know, a fairly normal Rumsey round the table conversation. Yeah. The only thing that I really know of is the, um, when I was working in the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology, there was this, the, was it the dick part that people refer to? Oh yes. It's That's basically, a penis yeah. It's basically. That everyone loves. Yeah.
0: Yes. Um, uh, it's it's very prominently displayed right in the kind of entrance area. It is. So you kind of, you know, it's straight straight up yeah. there. Hi, it's a penis pot. It's Roman,
1: I want yes. to say. Yeah, um, and people basically just walk in and look at it and go, <laughs> and walk out again. Um, which is an interesting attitude to not only, not only how people uh, consume museum media, but also uh, visitor numbers and how many <laughs> of the visitors. Uh, if you were to <laughs> look just at the penis pot. Yeah. If you were to look a, a, a linger model or whatever they're called I can't remember oh yeah um then I think that's probably in red <laughs> um and actually as I was speaking I do now remember that I have decanted uh, part I was part of the team to decant the uh, medicine galleries and muse- the science museum sorry and obviously medicine sexual medicine was that was quite a big part of it and you know contraception birth control aspects that sort of thing Mm. but nothing kind of full-on really
0: Mm. interesting although i do remember and in that museum museum of archaeology and anthropology that you and i were in the store once and we found an excellent box do you remember what that box said
1: i remember finding the box i remember giggling i don't remember what it said
0: oh excellent i have a picture somewhere where (laughs) we next to the box because i was so (laughs) delighted to find this a box that just says artificial breasts for men that's it I remember. Which is the most astonishing box. And I wish I would, I wish I'd opened it, but I was kind of doing something else and I just appreciate the label.
1: I imagine it's a sort of ceremonial.
0: Yeah, like like something maybe for dancing, that sort of thing. But like, oh my God, I want to go back and just look in that box. (laughs) what about you jenny so i was gonna say i think the smuttiest thing i've worked on directly would be um uh, an ancient egyptian model of a plow but it's in the shape of a penis like a really 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 long penis Standard. so it's about fertilizing the soil which is you know beautiful uh, symbolic beautiful also the strangest thing ever that was handed as an intern <laughs> <laughs> Here, have this thanks <laughs> So yeah, I think that's probably the smartest object mm-hmm. I've ever worked on. Uh, how about you, Christina? Uh,
2: yeah, quite a lot. I mean, I've I've, <laughs> I've had handled my fair share of penises and breasts um, in the course of work. Um, just because I spent I think about four years working on antiquities and then a couple of years working on anthropological things as well both of those tend to feature naked people so <laughs> it's kind of unavoidable well so, so funny that you should mention that conservators often get in the papers after oh yes working on these kinds of I objects wonder why because i, said that. <laughs> I did <laughs> and in fact i was interviewed for an article headlined penises and caustic soda um, oh, which is sounds a slightly, like a
1: brilliant uh, combination <laughs>
2: that's combination And um, we can put a link to that in the show notes. But that was because I'd worked on a kylix, an ancient Greek drinking cup, Mm. which was collected Ah. um, by a pair of collectors who donated their antiquities collection to the Fitzwilliam Museum subsequently. Mm -hmm. And they were both artists as well. And they were known to have done some of the restoration on their own objects. And um, I got interested in this one really because I was looking at a 1930s catalogue of these ceramics. And one of the entries, the entry for this cup just said Kylix, red figure, blah, 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 genitals restored by Ricketts. Ricketts being the then owner. So I was like, "Okay, there's a story there. So I had a look (laughs) at the cup and sure enough, someone has drawn the penis on. I don't know what's underneath the overpaint because we didn't. Remove it and the overpaint is itself now quite discoloured. So there's a kind of slightly dirty looking splodge over this guy's crotch (laughs) with a penis drawn on. (laughs) And I don't know whether the original was lost underneath um, and has been abraded and lost and they felt it was important to replace it or whether there was some kind of cosmetic procedure going on there (laughs) and they just decided to adjust it or what. And the whole thing is slightly baffling. And I actually went to the British Library and went through Ricketts and Shannon's diaries. Um, mm. To see if I could find out anything more about this, and I never got to the bottom of it disappointingly, but mm. it is on display. We decided not to remove the overpaint, partly because it was almost certainly if this catalogue is believed done by the collector, one of the collectors, who was himself a significant artist, and there's no particularly compelling reason to remove it yeah, but it was it was kind of felt to be newsworthy to make it into the guardian so <laughs>
1: I think it's interesting that we do so much kind of almost more interesting work on objects just day to day. And it's just you cleaning a pot that got into the the news just because it had a willy on it. I mean obviously it's very interesting work
2: <laughs> well not just because it had a willy on it I mean because because there's this whole kind of mystery about why was the willy overpainted and yeah, none of the rest true. of it yeah. and, and, and you know I mean, who did it and why yeah and,
0: you know. yeah. Okay. I also feel like there's an aspect of this sort of thing coming into the news every now and then like you know penis is being chopped off classical statues uh-huh. and stuff and people going oh we found the willy we put it back on <laughs> you know like I feel like that sort of thing does make it into media <laughs> every now and then uh, just as a kind of like, oh look they're putting the penis back on it's different to say an art isn't it yeah it is but <laughs> so um what kind of erotica and things like that can we find in collections what kind of smutty things are hiding in our collections
2: there's Cause, so much because it doesn't have yeah. to be a dedicated
0: sex collection like, no as uh, well. i'm currently
2: working in an anthropology museum uh, yeah so there's tons and tons of of naked figures and um ceremonial things and mm. penises and so on and and and, fertility
0: um, symbols that sort of thing
2: So we've got loads of things, haven't we?
1: And things that you wouldn't really necessarily consider as... Being part of Sex and Collections, so Mm -hmm. the the thing that really interests me is photography because there's that old joke, isn't there, that you you got (laughs) photography as a as a technology and then instantly people started making porn like immediately as and my main interest for this is people's attitudes to it Mm. and how that's affected its preservation because you've got you know like the first photograph of Manchester or whatever it is that people have kept and they've gone us this is really important Mm. but. You could have. Did they keep the first nude? Yeah, exactly. Have you got this stuff? Was it kept? Was it hidden? Did attitudes to
0: pornography change since it was taken? But also, I suppose, it's about what we put in the word pornography. So is that uh, any nude? Because arguably, we don't treat nude art, like fine art, as outright pornography. We're quite happy to have that on on our walls and our galleries, Mm -hmm. including, you know you know even if you're like you know describing yourself as a very family friendly museum you still got nude people on the walls and i true, mean true i suppose that's
1: it's part of a sexual nature isn't it
2: yeah i'd like to say only women um <laughs> yeah. i do think that i mean there's there's oh, Art historians have written an awful lot about the male gaze, G A Z E, yeah. um, and the, <laughs> the way that the history of fine art basically makes it acceptable for people to look at women's bodies. Yeah, and I do think that, poss- with the possible exception of uh, classical sculpture and Renaissance sculpture, generally we're talking about naked women on the walls mm. being no,
0: acceptable. No, that, that's yeah, that true. There aren't a
2: lot of dicks on the walls.
0: <laughs> no, that's true. You, you don't you don't and get is- enough penises on the walls.
1: but I said it's. And it is interesting to note actually that um, I think, now I might be wrong, Victorian era-ish, you basically, you needed an excuse to paint boobies and tended (laughs) to be that that excuse was, this is a representation of a a, a historical woman or something like, this is a painting of Cleopatra reclined and we're allowed to get her breasts out
0: because she's a history. Yeah, quite. I would follow that up with that it, uh, you do see male nudity in terms of classical yeah, uh, statues yeah. and stuff like that but beyond that you don't really see it no like, not so much but essentially when it's art or arty we just kind of accept it mm-hmm. uh, then it's 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 a nude
1: then it's a nude it's and it's not porn. porn but then then you've got things like the Tracy Emin drawings oh, yeah. that are they're nudes but they're of a sexual nature and i yeah. say tracy I Emin mean, just because that's the, the the thing that immediately jumped into my mind mm. there will be so many others of course
2: i was going to say so museums have always collected this stuff and one of the things i sort of unearthed while researching for this episode was cupboard 55 at the british museum oh Ooh. yes i've heard of it. i this. don't know if you've come across that no i haven't i've heard of it not seen which it. is also called <laughs> also called the secretum <laughs> um, and I think to be fair cupboard fifty five no longer actually collect contains their secret pawn section. Collection, but um, they used to have a separate cupboard for this stuff. It used to be collected but kept separately from the rest of the collection. Oh, that's interesting. Hmm. And I've found an article about it. Dr. Wit, the um, collector, the guy who presented this collection to the museum, it says his obsessive interest was in what he called symbols of the early worship of mankind. So we're already Aww. going into some sort of euphemism there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but not just in, not in just any symbol. For the mayor was a specialist. He collected across. The centuries and the continents, every representation of the phallus, which is a posh way of saying the erect penis, that he could get his hands on: Assyrian dicks, Egyptian dicks, Greek and Roman dicks, medieval <laughs> dicks, dicks with wings, dicks with eyes, dicks with hawk's heads, boxes upon boxes and cupboard fifty-five contained wax dicks, lead dicks, dicks in the form of signet rings, lamps, brooches, and so on. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> that's one hell of an article. Uh, again, we could put a link to it oh, in the show. Oh, absolutely, uh, we will. Show. It's from the Daily Telegraph, bizarrely, but I, it, it this <laughs> they they collected this stuff, and as I said, it had this kind of academic veneer. But I think there was mm-hmm. probably quite a lot of I think there was quite a lot of prurience there as well, and they used to sort of screen the people who could actually get access to oh, this. Oh yes, that was, a, that was a you very know, you're a common anyone thing. Into your yeah. cupboard of dicks. <laughs> Yes.
1: <laughs> and that's really interesting, isn't it? Because obviously there was the um, the antiquarianism collections. But there is obviously, because of society's attitudes and our own personal attitudes, it's there is a specific kind of set of reasons why people collect
0: stuff. Yeah, of course. That's true of everything. But then I'm interested in this notion of gatekeeping, that not everyone is allowed to yeah. see this. You, you kind of have to be invited in to see mm-hmm. the penises. And that's... <laughs>
2: that's a really
0: funny thing but it's also very common like a lot of museums who have what they might have once considered very sordid collections mm-hmm. would, you know, screen who is allowed to see it. Yeah, I'm not really sure what they're screening for because can you can you tell what someone's motivations are for seeing a collection just by looking at them? No,
1: and I suppose nowadays we have like it. We don't not show these things, but we do have the 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 sign on the wall that says, "Around this wall, there you will find some images of a sexual oh, yeah. nature." A blah, mm-hmm. blah 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 blah. Yes, maybe that's considered true. Considered offensive,
2: so. At the moment, we've got the warnings... I also found an article about a British Museum exhibition from 2013. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it says the British Museum will open an exhibition of sex in Japan later this year. I I think the exhibition is about sex in Japan, not it's an exhibition of sex in Japan, Mm -hmm. um, which will include explicit paintings and illustrations. And they actually took the decision to restrict the entrance to the exhibition to over 16s. Mm -hmm. Partly because of that recognition that they need to be kind of, you know, Uh
0: No, I, I can see that choice being made
2: was that the prince japanese
0: prince yes i think so
1: eroticism because i saw loads of adverts about from that and i thought oh that'd be brilliant to go to and never made
0: it i never made it
1: unfortunately yeah. london is expensive
0: yeah it
2: is yeah so what it said is that children under 16 will have to they did let in people under 16 but they would have to be accompanied by an adult mm. and oh, parents right. with children under 14 so it's like 14 a cinema approach really that the show contains yeah absolutely and mm. it's kind of up to the parents to decide mm-hmm. yeah. whether they're going to let their children see this kind of stuff or not
1: mm. that's quite a good even-handed attitude really yeah. isn't it and of course you
0: know the, that's probably the mature approach yeah
2: it is mm-hmm. because you know they're a public museum they're a national museum they're funded by everybody they need to make their exhibitions open to everybody yeah. in yeah. some sense as well
1: yeah it's not point. a secret is it either if that's what your the title of your exhibition is basically well
0: yeah um, it's not
1: like people are going to no. sort of <laughs> stroll in and go oh my god i'm so offended <laughs> so that that kind of covers art
0: in collections i feel well
1: i've got a couple of examples actually oh, you yeah. have a couple of museums um actually you have a really nice list of the different or or where there are oh yeah. sex museums around the world yeah and so i'll go into a couple of examples I've, that
0: I've i up. thought it was interesting right so Apparently, sex museums were quite popular in the 60s and 70s because, you know, the Great Sexual Revolution and all that, right? Mm -hmm. So then these things started cropping up. And then they kind of had a revival in the 90s where they were then renamed erotica museums but a lot of them have closed and that sort of thing but there are at least four in america about 10 or so in europe probably three or so in asia and there used to be one in australia so there's they are around like dedicated museums Mm -hmm. to erotic art or erotic collections but there does, does seem to be an awful lot of them popping up and then closing again, which I think you did a little bit of reading on, Chloe.
1: Yeah. So what I wanted to have a look at, because the, the ones that I've heard of particularly are the Museum of Eroticism in Paris. And I heard about that one just from my parents, because obviously with the with the artwork connection, they wanted to, they, they vote go to Paris a lot because they have galleries there, uh, a gallery not owning, obviously, they yeah. show work at a gallery. And because of the subject matter, it's an interesting museum because it's, it claims to be focused On art collections, so Mm -hmm. um, eroticism in art, Um, and it was founded in 1997, so matches our uh, our '90s thing. And it was closed in 2016. The the reason for that is considered to be um, the drop in interest due to terror attacks, and that's from Paris did suffer from a lot of that. Yeah, exactly. So, and that's from the voice of one of the owners or the Mm. ex-owners. So, as a description of what they've got, it's um, erotic art in part as a, a collection for the two from the two owners built over decades, and also a floor on the legal brothels in the nineteenth and 20th century in Paris um, closed just after the first world war and then some a, sp- a couple of floors for changing exhibition spaces for contemporary artists and that got me interested obviously because obviously now it's closed there's no longer a kind of uh, platform for artists in Paris to explicitly show erotic art so mm. I don't know I wonder how that's changed or whether how that's changed the art scene in Paris and- yeah.
0: whether just other outlets have have emerged or is it just that we're kind of stepping back and in fact that it's now condemned to not being seen yeah maybe like, yeah is that now being a hidden thing instead yeah
1: um so i've looked at the reviews for this on TripAdvisor, advisor and this they're just very obviously all TripAdvisor reviews vary loads but one is as an example sex is the same all around the world Um, which I thought was a really nice one. Though another one then said sex is different all around the world. (laughs) So I think it it depends on your outlook and what you're expecting as well the one that I found most interesting in my little look was not really a legit museum next to strip clubs, sex shops and hookers and I find that really interesting Mm. because what does a real museum mean? Is that this individual's attitude to sex or sex collections Mm. or is it the way that the museum was laid out or is it the context of the the museum because you know when we
0: were talking about this just before we started recording Jenny Mm. we we were thinking well that's just kind of in its natural yeah, then it mean y- yeah exactly but yeah is it just the expectation that museums are elevated and they need to be yeah. in a very clean kind of you know like the in the perfect in the perfect yeah clean niche.
1: and class, classy it, and then yeah. what does that mean about people's attitudes to sex and to sex yeah. collections so i thought that was really interesting mm. uh, and the next one the second one i looked up um this These two weren't scientifically chosen, by the way. The um, I looked up the one in Paris because I'd heard of it. And I looked up the one in Amsterdam, um, the Temple of Venus, because the number of people on, for example, just my Facebook feed that you hear that they're going to Amsterdam and then you see photos of them um, in front of the big red letters and then next to the big penis in the sex museum. (laughs) It seems like that's, you know... Those are the things. Those are the things you go and do. So it opened in 1985 and it was listed as one of the most visited museums or... yeah, one of the most visited museums in the Netherlands in 2015. So mm. that was interesting to me because 2015 is only a year before the one in Paris closed down. Yeah, so interest was still high. Yeah, interest yeah. Is still high, but I don't, it's difficult to know whether it is because of the people obviously still go to Paris, even though the ter- there were terror attacks. Mm. It's described as showing the evolution of sex through the ages and attitudes to sex through the ages and the reviews for this um are again really varying one being would recommend for a laugh <laughs> which i found interesting so obviously we have kind of belittling attitudes to sex and sex collections and sex objects um yeah, it's just, as a society it's it's like more, lols yeah, yeah it's more the jokey
0: kind of yeah. approach to it yeah
1: i wonder if that has really affected how we as the heritage industry kind of behave towards sex objects and sex related objects mm. should say but others say that another one says fun and informative another says enlightening and then back down to nothing but a joke um as another attitude so obviously this has something to do with what people are expecting Mm. but also maybe people's attitudes to these collections again and
0: um maybe how what yeah so that's obviously for dedicated collections of a sexual nature but i was gonna again kind of rein it back to the, the kind of stuff that we might find in our collections and i was thinking something as simple as i'm sure most places with a costume collection will have some underwear yeah and like some lingerie uh i'm, I'm sure m- most places would have that might even display it not necessarily mm-hmm. in a sexy way but more of a just what you would wear on your yeah clothes. lace making in yeah, the 1800s yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, sort of uh, <laughs> and then um i was thinking of something that we have in our collection which i'm i'm quite entertained by uh, it's the smartest thing i can think of in our collection uh, is calling cards for prostitutes because oh, right. um frankly soldiers used them a lot <laughs> so they collected their calling cards <laughs> But that's like you know evidence of the famously proclaimed old oldest job. Well, quite yeah, exactly. oldest profession
1: exactly. <laughs> yeah. so that brings it. I think, I mean, we briefly touched on the internet. Yeah, just saying. and I, this is a this is a topic that is huge, and obviously the the preservation of the internet and digital archiving and digital. Um, recording is one of those things that I feel like I just don't even slightly have the handle on in terms of how we're going to preserve this stuff our attitudes to uh, how these our attitudes to this is going to change over time Mm. but there's a huge amount of porn on the internet yeah <laughs> like half of the internet
0: is porn a lot. as
1: far as i can as far as you know the safe search goes there's a
0: lot and i'm unclear on who if anyone should be collecting that and like how would you be
1: but there's it's but. interesting because it has it says so much to us about people's attitudes to sex mm, and people's attitudes to women and the body and everything so if this stuff just disappears then we, you know we could find ourselves in 50 years with a certain set of attitudes to how sex happens. But nothing to back it up But nothing to back it up. No idea of how we got to that point. I do
0: find that interesting because I was reading a feminist book very recently and it was all about, oh, this this is the sort of thing that we see in porn these days and this is how they the author believe that that affects yeah. how we think of ourselves as women and essentially that's all well and good because i know what she's talking about but mm-hmm. someone reading that in 30 years time is not going to have any yeah, idea yeah. what she's on about because yeah. they don't know what porn in the early 2000s were like yeah, why exactly. would they because yeah. we probably haven't kept it
2: yeah <laughs> yeah there's a lot of ep- evidence that um exposure to norms of porn if you like have, have affected the way that younger people are now seeing their own sexuality and how they grow up and what they sort of view as normal or desirable and so on and mm. it has it's changed the way people feel about their own bodies in a very obvious way and it's Mm. also changed what people feel they ought to be doing yeah. um, and what they you know it's 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 had a hugely kind of it's it's fed back it's not porn is not just driven by people's desire for particular things and to see particular things it's also feeding back into then exactly what people how people behave and what they end up desiring and so on and I wonder if that also is going to have an effect on how people then view things that were seen as erotic or smutty or whatever in the past because you know we've kind of moved so far exactly from, yeah but then you I know think being that's... turned on by a glimpse of someone's ankles or something <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, that. that's
0: true i mean that does seem a bit far-fetched in today's day and age perhaps but at the same time that makes for such interesting conversations that we can have in museums and that we can have in these gallery spaces where we can talk about well why would this have been so erotic
1: yeah exactly like belly buttons
0: just, yeah imagine a world where this is forbidden to you yeah. completely forbidden like You know, I I just think there's so much scope for actually talking about these things and really examining them, Mm -hmm. uh, which I I think is a tremendous thing that we really ought to do. Yeah. I think you and I talked briefly about the, possibility of a playboy
1: archive yes so uh, uh, again as the chloe's famous anecdotes have absolutely no context just a <laughs> v- vague memory of what uh, it was about and where it's about and where it's from but it is possible to download all of the front covers and or centerfolds i can't quite remember yeah. of playboy magazine from its very first issue it's not just you know seeing naked women it's also photography and modeling and, and attitudes palettes. to color even and fashion and, yeah, how this changed. and how yeah how things like for example 1960s beautiful photographs 1990s really really bad <laughs> really awful and obviously you've got the, the sort of attitudes to things like pubic hair and body shape and of plastic surgery but also sort of whether there's other people in the photo is it just a lone woman is there another woman mm-hmm. are there men it, it's just really it really is an interesting and simple way of just looking the way
0: the way things have changed over time yeah i think um, that, i think that's interesting and that does make me think is there anything that shame is or the perception of shame is stopping us from collecting do you think as museums oh definitely i'd say yeah because i suspect there's a lot of oh that's more no that's that, that, mm-hmm. that might be a bit I'm not really sure how that fits into a collection policy. Uh, (laughs) Please take this away, sir. I feel like there might be a little bit of that, but actually maybe we Um, should make an effort.
2: Well, interestingly, one of the other things I wanted to talk about was libraries um, and specifically copyright libraries Mm -hmm. who collect everything printed in the UK, including pornographic texts, basically. The library at my university when I was a student is in an immensely phallic building. (laughs) It's got a gigantic great tower, sticking up out of two side wings you can you can see it from quite a long way and it is hugely (laughs) symbolic of all kinds of things but when I was an undergraduate there were persistent rumors that the tower was where they kept the porn collection (laughs) oh I love (laughs) Um, it And, and I mean you know I mean also you can go into all kinds of symbolic things there as well but yeah <laughs> anyway so there were the, that that was just one of those things that all undergraduates knew you know oh if you go to the university library you know there's a secret porn collection in the tower oh. and, you know nobody's allowed in there and there every now and then there'd be rumours about somebody who had been in there <gasps> and had, had access to it and then there were you know lots of people sort of didn't really believe that there was that kind of stuff in the U- university library so a few years ago the university actually had a sort of PR effort to dispel these rumours oh and say, yes, we do collect pornography, among our other things. We do have things that are considered to be scandalous or pornographic texts, but no, they're not kept in the Tower. And I found an article about it in the student newspaper, which is quite interesting because it, it sort of says some of the things that are actually in the collections. And some of them are quite, uh, I mean, it does sort of give you quite an interesting history of sexuality and an act attitude to changing attitudes to sex so some of the earlier texts are things like uh, flirting made easy a guide for girls brackets illustrated (laughs) how do you illustrate which includes most intriguingly named passages such as the seaside and the girls at it or cupboard love and Policeman," or world of making this is amazing So, proffering detailed courtship advice to sensible, impulsive, and newly married young ladies, this guide suggests such, flaws, such saucy flirtation techniques as a gentle pause between questions. And far from titillating its readers through sexually explicit content, rather cautions against the world of deep, deep love and passion as rather too wild and weird. So- <laughs>
1: Oh,
0: that's immense.
1: Um, I wonder what there is with this archives as well. I wonder if there's an archive that focuses
0: on um, collecting sexual texts. Yeah, that's really interesting. I do also wonder if these people writing these erotic books have any notion that their work will be mandatory <laughs> part of the collection of the depository libraries.
1: <laughs> I want to ask a question about how uh, people are collecting, saving whatever things that people have written online because you've got so much
0: oh that's a lot of so out. so much
1: well and and not everything just so much everything well there. I yeah mean, quite it's overwhelming i suspect famously
2: 50 shades started Yes, yeah, quite
0: fanfic exactly i suspect a lot of it isn't being collected but maybe there should be an effort i'm not really sure who that falls to but i no. feel like at some point i mean archive.org will probably have some of this stuff just yeah. because that's the kind of purpose of it mm-hmm. for the everything not just much <laughs> but it does make me think about things like unseen culture like like can anyone represent what a sex shop looked like in the nineties? Like, what what's the experience yeah. of going in one? I I wasn't in one in the nineties because I was a child. But <laughs> but you know, like, it, does does anyone like collect the kind of stuff that would have gone in it, I or think, even can they even do a set dressing that looks a bit like yeah. it? I'm just curious to see kind of where people could go with this sort of thing because it's it's a it's an experience that could be exciting or embarrassing or mm-hmm. you know it can. It can evoke so many different emotions that I feel like that's kind of this. Exhibitions ideas just in that, like just yeah, trying to absolutely see how people react absolutely. to this sort of thing.
2: That's a, that's a really interesting idea because I think it comes back to that idea of responding to things in the same way as contemporaries mm. would have done. So yeah. yes, you could recreate your '90s sex shop, but would visitors in 2018 would it evoke those sort of same responses? Yeah. You can tell people yeah, how, how quite, your yeah. typical visitor in the 1990s might have felt, but you know things have moved on and porn mm. yeah. just pushed boundaries that weren't even considered then, I think. And I think it would be difficult to respond in the same way. And I think that's one of the things that's difficult for museums, but particularly with objects relating to sex, is that sex is generally a private thing. Mm -hmm. And really, the only evidence we have, particularly from kind of quite distant past cultures, are these artefacts. And it's difficult to know in a way how to interpret those and how they would have been seen and understood and how well they capture that private experience. As it was lived then, mm,
0: absolutely. Um, and then, I think
2: that's that's one of the things that's particularly difficult for museums. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, in one sense possibly sex hasn't changed a lot. You know, the mechanics are still basically the same. We haven't evolved physically <laughs> into that. <laughs> but in another sense, sex is about more than just the the physical the act. There's yeah. all the other kind of, there's all the other baggage that goes with it, that. and that's one of the things that's quite kind of inaccessible. And trying to get access to that through artifacts, I think, is always going to be kind of problematic. I'm thinking of the example of sort of homosexuality as represented in ancient Greek mm-hmm. objects, for yeah. example. There's there's a lot of objects that appear to show men in particular engaged in gay acts in some way. But from talking to academics when I was working on Greek collections in a museum, it seems that we, you know, we, we need to be quite cautious about understanding that as being in any way equivalent to the way that we would understand gay relationships now. Mm. But if you just looked at the object and what they appear to show then i think you would possibly misunderstand that
0: yeah and i mean this is true of anything that we look at things with modern eyes which you know like it's it's always going to be tough to put ourselves like or you know to to think of it the way that it would have been thought of then mm. because ultimately we view everything through the lens of who we are today so the, but it's a really interesting point isn't it uh, and I, I do find that very interesting i do wonder if anyone i mean not people because obviously people do but if like institutions out there are collecting things like porn mags or like yeah is, it, is there anything left of that or is it all like condemned to the recycling mm-hmm. of the bin or mm-hmm. like that shed in the woods that no one goes into yeah. <laughs> uh, it's just like is that just where it ends up But is any of it ever saved and I kind of fear for the ephemeral nature of these things in some ways because I think that yeah sure whilst in 50 years time like it won't mean the same thing to the next person who looks to it I still think there's a chance that it means something or Mm -hmm. that it it can be a part of someone's research yeah uh, or you know like it can back something up I I don't know I just feel like maybe maybe just need to keep it keep your sordid bits
1: (laughs) I have actually now three things to say in response to what we've just been talking about so firstly a shed in the woods sounds like the most swedish porn stash (laughs) i've ever heard accurate (laughs) taken from my actual experiences
0: there was famously a shed in the wood (laughs) where you could go and see some porn mags
1: (laughs) my second thing is if we took say in 200 years if we took just presented a top shelf the news agents' top shelf porn selection. Yeah, would would we would the attitude to 1990 sex be considered private or would it be considered public? And is that mm. is that just that if you do have sexual objects or or sex portrayed in object or art form, is it just assumed that then therefore that's a public thing that's acceptable? That that interests me, and I don't think we actually have an answer for that. Mm. That's just a bit sort of Ugh yeah (laughs) um and (laughs) thanks (laughs) and my the the third thing is the most important is um attitudes to lgbt sex and relationships Um. the representation of that is going to be really important to communities yeah huge groups understanding each other and themselves and all of that as well as you know
0: yeah and I mean, obviously, Being all accepting. obviously now there's a huge drive to actually be inclusive of mm. LGBT groups in museums, which is really good because we need to be represented. And uh, I feel like that's a really positive movement. And also, shout out, there's a thing called Museum Pride now, which is, is just yeah, that like museum professionals coming out. It's like, hello, we're out of the closet, which I thought was really nice. I like that. I saw them on Twitter. So like there, there are all these movements to make the LGBT community you know more represented in collections and uh, in our gallery spaces and all that stuff and I think that's really important and also on the staff side obviously but I, I I feel like we have so far to go with yeah, that. like. so far. But we've started it and we need to get better and please help us.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'd like to hear actually if um, if anyone in the LGBT plus community as conservation or museums in general is listening to this thinking, oh yeah, and has an opinion about co- museum collections or is familiar with collecting or a collection that has been started or whatever or museums exhibitions that have been Um, shown i'd be really interested to hear actually because i don't feel very clued in or Mm. aware of what people what
0: people's attitudes are to that well I mean it's been it's been tricky right so it's five story from me uh, so I've been trying to push that okay maybe maybe we should be collecting these stories mm-hmm. we can go out to the community and we can ask for stories ask for objects because it's a recognized frankly deficiency in our collection mm-hmm. that we just don't have these stories and then I feel like the attitude I've met uh, has very much been one of oh well maybe it's not a very big community maybe it's, maybe they don't want to and it's like well I want to and why don't we ask so like <laughs> <laughs> come on guys we, we could try you can't just assume like, disinterest the, yeah like everyone's free to say no but there could also be a couple of yeses and that would be a huge win like that would be better than like just silence so i, I think this is mm-hmm. like yeah. a lot of like we all who champion this we must nag away at people mm-hmm. and like just yeah. gently wear down the resistance yeah
1: <laughs> but then i wonder if there's also an attitude of lgbt plus communities just being like well it's not just about sex, you know. No,
0: quite. <laughs> so, yes. so I, I think obviously there is a there's
1: a there's a delicate line to tread with. Um, there is
0: basically. I mean, there Jeff. there is because I was thinking do I even want to bring up LGBT stuff in this episode because it's it's about Mm. sexuality yeah um and I mean obviously those are related but like LGBT plus stuff is obviously so much more about you know love and relationships and how you live your life and equality and it's so much more than doing it and, and who you do it with it's so much more than that right so it's Uh, i feel like it deserves its own rainbow episode uh and not just be crammed into this as the last time we ever talk about it it's not gonna be the last time don't
1: worry um i'm gonna say that um that i think says something really interesting about how our society views sex mm. and as that being at the moment really separate from love and relationships and the way you live your life and the the impact or not that it has on your life Mm. yeah i mean i think there's so much to
0: examine there that's a lot
1: i want to jump to deterioration oh okay um so i love plastics mm-hmm. um because i hate plastics it's probably the, <laughs> the context of uh of modern materials for yep. me. but the amount of objects mm-hmm. in sexual collections from the last 50 years that must be plastic and deteriorating. PV, yeah, yeah deteriorating mm-hmm. hugely like pleather yeah. instead of leather what's happening with that yeah, exactly. What we do, how does latex deteriorate? Yeah. Chlorinated latex is something that I've only just found out about. What does that do, guys? Maybe <laughs> yeah, we should what? look it up.
0: Yeah, exactly. So that's. I mean, and this kind of straddles uh, the line of... Uh, <laughs> BDSM culture and also fashion where like a lot of uh, these interesting latex PVC leather materials uh, are used in clothing in outfits yeah. and that sort of thing which is fashion but of a very particular type. Mm-hmm. That must cause so many headaches for people. I mean latex is notoriously poorly behaved. Yeah. It's like the worst thing, and yet it's very highly coveted in mm-hmm. BDSM circles. Mm-hmm. And like that's oof, that's going to be such a pickle for someone I I feel I
1: I wonder who's collecting this stuff yeah I'd like to hear if anyone knows Mm. if anyone knows of this sort of object like I'm thinking like outfits and sex toys and you know that sort of thing basically the bat anything in the back half of Ann Summers yeah I was gonna say anything you can find in Ann Summers deteriorate well is what I'm saying (laughs) it cannot do well in terms of
2: yeah mm. you've also given me the horrible idea of whether we should treat these as working objects that made that very interesting uh,
0: <laughs> explain. Do I really need to go into details? <laughs> I think once it ends up in a museum it's no longer a working object in that sense. Okay, at least, I'm I don't think like it battery should be.
2: powered vibrators and things yeah. like that. Yeah,
0: yeah, I mean that's a good point. I mean it's not going to
1: perform But do we that very why well. would we see that in any different respect to say a battery operated robot or something? Yeah,
0: no, I was- or remote
1: control car?
2: Because okay. we wouldn't keep because- the battery well okay so sometimes in musical instrument museums the instruments are maintained in working order so they can occasionally be played yes. Agreed. okay yeah mm-hmm. yeah i see i see yeah no i i do see the point so and i, I mean, think it probably is in a slightly different category
0: yeah but i do see what you mean because some of these are you know much more technically advanced than just vibrating on and off <laughs> no i'm just thinking of the ones that wiggle around and you know like the, i don't know have you ever been to an ensemble's party because wow they they do a lot of stuff i haven't actually they do a lot of stuff i feel like this should have been pre research that <laughs> <search>? <laughs> you will have a very suspect search history don't do it but yeah like obviously there are some fairly advanced stuff out there mm-hmm. but i feel like then like you should maybe take this uh, as there must be a different way of maybe preserving that like yeah okay just uh, d- do a little video of it while it's still going yeah. and then you know you have to keep that with the object record file and mm-hmm. just be like well this is what it would have done when it worked
1: i just had a really this is not related not um, in use just like
0: as a demonstration like not with a person not accompanied no not accompanied
2: <laughs> one of the things that came to mind when i was I was looking for sort of examples of stuff in museums and i found a short film by a man called isaac julian about uh called the attendant which was about the erotic fantasies of an attendant in a museum late at night when he's looking at a painting Uh, I haven't actually seen the film I should say I meant to track it down on YouTube and see it but I haven't and one of the points is that the attendant is black and the young man he's fantasizing about is white and I think reading from reading reviews about it, it makes links between the kind of um BDSM fantasies that he's having and the history of slavery oh. of black people by white oh. people, which is represented in this painting and so on. But apparently overlooking this is a conservator or listening approvingly, it says. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how the approval is conveyed, but that's what you all the time say, <laughs> listening improvingly. It's a conservator who's working on frames and so on. And I thought that was interesting that he felt the need to put the conservator yeah, in there. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering why a conservator, because not, they're not the kind of first person that people tend to think about. Curator. But, yeah. Yeah, thinking about yeah. museum personnel. And I wondered if it was something to do with the way that conservators look at stuff a lot. So having yeah. a who's quite kind of passive, but is looking at things, mm-hmm. is, is an onlooker, it's quite a kind of conservator kind role mm-hmm. and then I wondered if it was also to do with the way that conservators are often the only people who are allowed to touch objects and oh, then right. we have that very privileged position oh, yeah. of understanding point. the objects in a way that others don't and we get to feel them we get there's that whole kind of sensuality about the, the yeah. tactility of the objects. we feel yeah. what the text feels like is this object cool or warm or rough or smooth or how does it feel what's the weight and I think that gives you quite a different relationship um, to objects from the kind of relationship you can have if you're only looking at them. And I think this is possibly a bit of a stretch <laughs> for the kind of smut episode. But I just wanted to say something about how people often find objects in themselves sensual, not necessarily sexual, but they're... they're...
1: I think that's a really nice way of thinking about it.
2: Yeah.
0: Today I'm reviewing a book called On Sexuality, Collecting Everybody's Experience, which was published in 2015 by Museums Etc. It's a short volume of five essays surrounding the topic of sexuality in museums. The first chapter is called Let's Talk About Sexuality, Exhibiting LGBTQ Voices, and its author Sean Curran takes us on a journey through a number of successful exhibitions on the topic. It's really refreshing to read about how both big and small museums across the UK have been creating LGBTQ exhibitions in recent years. But the author doesn't shy away from saying that interpreting objects as queer is a difficult task. Instead, the power of oral histories is highlighted. This chapter is peppered with good practice examples and constructive advice for people to take away. This is followed by a very brief chapter called Collecting a Drag King Ensemble by Jill Austen. It follows the journey of a donation into a Chicago museum collection. Many museum professionals will already be familiar with how museums collect, how donations are sought, how they are approved, and how collection policies and exhibition programs factor into these processes. So this chapter seems to be aimed at a non-museum audience in a way. Next is a chapter dedicated to a museum. Amoroteket, a museum of sexology by Stine Katrin Kyle Hansen. This reads as a marketing pamphlet for the museum and its purpose initially, but soon delves into a more in-depth discussion when talking about how museums can address big issues in society, like sexual assaults and the importance of consent, and foster body positivity in people of all ages. Following this is Contagious, the Effective Politics of AIDS and Scrapbooks by Katrin Kuppert, which explores the medium of scrapbooks as a way of displaying and recording personal journeys with HIV. This is a powerful chapter about the power of freeform art and how archival collections can help highlight stories closely related to sexuality. The final essay in this anthology is by Stephanie Snyder and is entitled This Book Was Made for Lesbians – The Possibilities of Visualizing Community in Lesbian Photo Albums. Again, this examines the importance of archival material in making a hidden subculture a little more visible. This chapter examines the links between photography as art, lesbian identity building, and the importance of being seen. I really like that this book addresses issues like lumping LGBTQ people together. I get that we've claimed that group label, but we actually encompass a very varied group of communities within that designation you're not collecting a homogenous group of stories from us. In fact, it's a bit more of a jumble, but ultimately I suppose that's true of any group of people. I do, however, feel like this publication is a little abrupt. I would have liked an introduction and a conclusion, or even just an editorial summary at the end. It's a good set of essays, but they don't seem very tied together, and I feel like a strong editorial voice would have helped with that. That being said, their content is good and certainly provides food for thought for museum professionals wishing to expand their collecting to include both LGBTQ and straight content of a more sexual nature. This book is 140 pages long with colour illustrations. If you'd like to buy this book, you can purchase it for £25 straight, pardon the pun, from the publisher. That price includes worldwide shipping, so that's a bit of a bargain.
3: Dear Jane, what do you do when your professional confidence has hit rock bottom? Without going into excruciating detail, I feel pretty down at work right now, and the feeling of rubbishness has become a feeling of I'm not good at my job. But how do I get out of that rut? Any advice was much appreciated. I hate feeling like this, but I can't seem to shake it. Dear Anonymous, thank you very much for your question. The question that you ask is such an important question. We all know it even has a title, imposter syndrome. The sense that you've got yourself in a position that's far better than you can actually deliver and that you're really not good enough to do the job. Well, my first thought is I think it's very unlikely that this is actually true. So it might be possible that you can check in with a colleague, someone you've trusted or known for a long time, and just ask them to look at some of your work. But to be honest with you, I don't think that the answer to imposter syndrome is really about whether or not you're good enough at the job. It's really about how you're feeling about your job and how you're evaluating yourself. Now, for some people, um, a sense of dread going to work, a sense of not feeling competent is a sign of a far greater problems in terms of their own mental health. And if it's affecting any of you listeners, go and get help. Um, sometimes it's hard to go and ask for medical help for mental health problems, but it's something which we should all be getting more comfortable with and more confident to do, because our brain and our emotions are as much a part of us as breaking a toe or a finger. And it's incredibly important that we feel that we can ask for help. I think that really leads me into the next part of the problem: why not ask for help? Why not ask your friends and family and network for a little bit of validation? may seem like an unusual thing, certainly not very British for some of our British listeners, but seeking support and validation from your friends and your peers is something I'm sure that they'd be very happy to do. Perhaps even just ask them about an example of when they have seen you do something that they've been impressed about. Social media doesn't all have to be about people arguing about the political issues of the day. It can be used for good. Sometimes the sense of low self-worth stems from the behaviour of a colleague or someone who you're working with or you know, who's deliberately or thoughtlessly undermining you with this constant series of criticisms or perhaps leaving you out of important decisions or just always talking your role down as if it's less important. But try to think about that. Is there someone in your life who's bringing negativity and unhappiness to your life? Because if they are, I know it's incredibly hard to block them out, but try to remember that their ability to hurt you and to drag you down can only really get to you if you let them get inside your head. Obviously, if someone's manoeuvring in a position um, in a workplace situation that's unprofessional or unfortunate, think about whether you can go to your trade union or any other way to get random. But remember, if what they're doing is belittling you and, and talking you down, then there's a very good chance that that stems from their own inadequacies and their own inabilities. And try to perhaps give less energy to their negative thoughts and give more energy to your positive thoughts. So that really then means, well, let's think about how you foreground some positive thoughts into your day. Perhaps at the end of every day, think about something that you've achieved. Have a diary. And just write down the thing I've been proudest of today or the thing that I've learned today. Write it down. And if you're really feeling super good, try telling it to someone. When you get home, if there's someone there for you to talk to, just tell them or share a little Instagram photograph of something you've done or just tell someone incidentally at work in work to- in the coffee break. Just really been pleased with the piece of work that I've done today. Make a habit of speaking the positive, and the positive will come to you. And while you're doing that, why not pass on a compliment to someone else that you know, someone else that you meet, whether it's a complete stranger who you just admire the amazing combination of their shoes and their handbag, or whether it's a professional colleague who you say that was an incredible, difficult situation, and I thought you handled it really well and professionally. It's amazing how much you can pass on that happiness, and perhaps be the centre of a slightly more positive um, perspective on the world. You might find that some refresher training helps boost your confidence. Sometimes I know when I go on a course and I think, oh yeah, I do know that, I did know that, I do feel better from doing that. And that doesn't have to cost money, there's loads of useful online training that you can tap into. and Perhaps go and train on something a little bit different, um, a TED talk or something that just stretches you in another area. So if you're having problems talking, Seek out some of the communication advice stuff or something like that. Take yourself on a little free course that you get a, um, a certificate with at the end. Just so you can see that you can achieve things and you can do things. And I would really end by saying that the one thing about imposter syndrome, that perhaps the only good thing about imposter system is one of the, if its worst qualities, is just how many of us suffer from it. If you mention that you're feeling like you um, can't do your job properly and you talk to some of your friends or colleagues or family about it, you'll be surprised how many people come straight back to you saying that, oh, I feel that I can't do this thing very well or I'm not very good at that. And perhaps by looking at the massive contrast between their perception of themselves and their actual abilities in your eyes, you'll begin to see um, and be able to focus on the fact that this is this is not a real reflection of, of what you're actually able to do, just about how you're valued and how um, society maybe teaches you about not being confident about your values and things like that. So I think really to sum it up, if this is overwhelming, if this is making you feel nauseous when you approach your, approach your work, if your sleep is deeply disturbed, if you're feeling panic attacks, then this is a medical thing. It should be taken incredibly seriously. If this is one of those day-to-day draining things, then look for the positives. Be that positive person in your workplace. Be the person who offers the positive feedback. And I'm sure it will come back to you as well. Over and out. Good morning, Jenny. You're in my house. I Welcome.
1: am. Welcome. i We're you. sitting at the breakfast table and there's cats around that will probably make some noises, which will be adorable. They are excellent cats. Uh, so. They are really good cats. Uh, and you're looking, I mean mighty sprightly for the week you've had hey thanks um you've been this week at the museums association conference haven't you i have in belfast
0: yeah so first time in belfast and obviously icons conference is going to be there next year very excited now i know where i'm going which is also good it's a very confusing building, the Belfast waterfront, because it's got so many different levels uh-huh. um, and loads of different little stairs to go off into different bits. So depending on how huge the ICON conference is going to be, it's going to be really interesting trying to navigate oh around all the different areas. It'd be fine. It'd be fine. It'd, ah, it'd be fine. Be fine. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm sure they're <laughs> going to have loads of volunteers who can point us in the right yeah. direction. So it'll be absolutely fine. Yeah. No, it was really good. Uh, I learned loads of things. Good. I've got so much stuff to tell everyone, like... Back at the museum yeah. and in the region about like stuff I've learned, so that's really oh, good.
1: Good, and I understand there were some uh, smart, relevant things yes. that you've learned and talks yes. you've seen.
0: Absolutely. So something that the Museums Association does every year at the conference. Well, I, I don't know exactly how long they've been doing this but they do it every year as far as I'm concerned uh, is the Festival of Change and oh, that right. tends to be like slightly more provocative and creative interventions some of them were really good this year Uh one of them was called Is Your Vagina Normal? Oh hi mean which I mean uh, is amazing and it was presented by the Vagina Museum um, there's a what? Oh, yes. where is it? no right so this at the moment they don't have a permanent location right. okay. so they're travelling okay. museums museum oh, brilliant! Um, but it's it's a fabulous idea so it's just uh, they collect anything that's uh, gynecological i see uh anything like that and basically there is my vagina normal thing is something that they go out and do at, at schools and stuff to just kind of oh, you know like talk excellent. to girls about uh uh-huh. yeah whatever you have it's fine
1: yeah. like, <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> probably <that's> normal <laughs> yeah
0: it's like that is fine don't worry about it which i just i love as a concept yeah uh, but then i would as a swede because we already do that sort of thing in yeah, school you're so really like, like, kind of open about that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, well, you got to teach young people about their bodies and stuff. Like, well, not in do. Britain, in
1: this country, we pretend we don't have bodies. Oh, yes, yes, yes. You go for
0: the Victorian approach. Oh, uh, um, uh, yes. Oh, my God, a flash of ankle. <laughs> uh. But no, it was fabulous. And uh, I did tell them that I was going to talk about them on the yeah. show because uh, I was like. Good. I need to tell people about this it's fabulous so i don't know what the plan is if they're gonna like ever have like a permanent location or anything mm-hmm. but if you ever see a pop-up exhibition with them or anything definitely go uh they had like some fabulous artwork and oh. all that stuff there was also something called the museum of femininity oh. which i quite liked i mean i was drawn in because they had postcards with knitted boobs on them which is <laughs> instantly a win for me uh, <laughs> just like oh a knitted boob um but yeah so uh it's uh they describe themselves as a daring interactive museum where visitors will be allowed to handle objects that signify aspects of womanhood typically perceived as taboo or disgusting oh, so one of the things that i looked at in one of their boxes i think the box was called something like insert me <laughs> of course <laughs> And it was a um, fake bloody tampon. I mean, it's a real tampon, but the blood is fake. That was used in, like, protests and stuff uh, recently. And they had, you know, they had a lot of these sorts of things around where they had, like, uh, stuff that had been used for protests Mm -hmm. and all that stuff. Uh, And apparently they do a podcast. So if I find that, I'll pop a link to that in the show notes. Um, Yeah, so I got very excited because A, talking to other podcasters, and B, oh my God, tampons! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, they had so many good things. So they had uh, museums are a drag, which... uh, Uh, featured drag queens oh great um and also one of the activities for that was that uh you you had like paper cutouts of people and you could essentially coloring and, and draw uh your museum as if it wasn't drag which was an interesting challenge you know i I just thought it was an interesting concept think about like how what your museum would look like as a drag queen i loved it i loved it it was great apparently there was a drag show as well like in the evening but Mm -hmm. i I was too knackered i couldn't go there was so many good things going on but those are the things that were like relevant Mm -hmm. to the smut episode i think (laughs) which was fabulous great review god i need a nap now though do you want some more toast oh yes please and some tea now we're talking. If you're enjoying The C Word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisements. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crushed the numbers and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. That's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C-word and join our bunch of absolute champions. Thanks for listening. we The C-Word, and you've been listening to Christina Roseick, Chloe Rumsey, and me, Jenny Mathiasson. Join us next time for an episode about tools. In the meantime, check out our website at thecword.show, tweet us at thecwordpodcast, or simply email us on the podcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Missick, used under a Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice Production.